that's not nearly enough to cover all the territory. Sure, no, especially if you add all the origin stuff into it. I'm sure there'll be some nerds who are like, well, I really wish they had covered. I wanted more of Romulus and Remus. Don't worry, I don't think anybody says that. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Mr. Benjamin Percy, currently the writer of X-Force and Wolverine, and most importantly to all of the eager listeners today, I'm sure, the upcoming weekly event, 10 Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine, which is spinning out of Inferno and the end of Jonathan Hickman's tenure on this title going into the new era, Destiny of X, which I, for one, am super, super excited about. Benjamin, Ben, what what should I call you? After my interview with Leah, I just referred to you in my head as Mr. Percy all the time. So (laughs) I'm not sure how to address you. (laughs) You can just call me Ben. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for being on. How are you doing today? Good. I was telling you during our pre-recording banter that Piles of snow are uh, currently seen piling up outside my window. It's just, it's, I'm in my ideal environment right now. Frozen north of Minnesota. Yeah, you are kind of an Arctic sort of person, much like Wolverine. That is one aspect of the character I've always had a little bit of a difficult time connecting to. I'm sitting in Westchester, New York at my parents' house, which is roughly 20 minutes from where the X-Mansion should be, which is where I grew up which is probably part of my lifelong attachment to this franchise, although I'm thrilled that they're not there anymore and they've let the mansion become a nest for those little alien guys because nothing interesting happens here. And by God, it was time to get out. (laughs) But I recently moved to LA. Soaking up the sun. Yeah, and I'm about to jaunt down to Florida for a little bit to see family. So I'm just, the winter and, and I do not really, never the twain shall meet, Yeah, I just wish I lived in a permanent winter. Right, like you want to be in the permafrost, in the tundra, in Siberia, perhaps, where our friend Omega Red has spent a lot of time. I actually sleep with the window open, uh, even when it's sub-zero outside. So every morning, my wife and I wake up looking like Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining. My brother is like that. I'm so thrilled that you're on the show. This is kicking off the new year on Cerebro today, assuming that I got my edit done in time, which I think I will because we're recording with a good amount of lead time, is January 4th, the day that your new novel, The Unfamiliar Garden, is out. 10 Lives in Excess, I believe, drops, the first issue drops next week, right? There were delays, so it's like I'm not 100%. No, the crazy printer complications you know inferno the last issue of inferno had to come out i think it's coming tomorrow when you're hearing this yeah the last issue of inferno had to come out before the first issue of 10 lives because there's a baton pass so i think that we got bumped a little bit forward in january um it might be the 19th okay well i am excited whenever it's coming My day job is in trade publishing. So whenever people are like, what's going on? Should we be worried that the comics are... I'm like, no, no, no. Because like we can't print regular books right now. Nobody can print anything. They assume that things are stabilizing. But, you know, when you talk about who knows what's going to be happening in mid-January, I mean, we might be living in Fury Road by then. 
we truly have no idea. So hopefully everything's going fine when you're hearing this and the first issue is coming down the pipe. Before we dive into your work, Ben, I would love to chat a bit about your origin story with the X-Men, how you came to love these characters in this franchise. In your case, how you came to work on it. I mean, you were brought in with Teeny Howard and Jerry Duggan and a couple other people very early in Jonathan Hickman's process for this new era when he was building this office. So I'm very interested to hear your take on how it all developed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes to my origin story with comics and with the X-Men, I can't remember the first novel that I read. It might have been The Hobbit. It might have been, you know, a Ramona Quimby book. It might have been <laughs> a clock on its walls. That all sort of melts together in that third, fourth grade time. But I remember almost all of the comic books that I read. And that's because, you know, I would read them over and over and over again until they fell apart in my hands. And, you know, I moved around quite a bit as a kid. But I spent the first six years of my life in a town called Crow, Oregon, which is just outside of Eugene. And we had 27 acres of land, and, and the area was so rural that we didn't have a grocery store with a mercantile. Oh, wow. Places, you know, with the wide plank. That's very Oregon Trail, honestly, is like the place it's taking me to in my head. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, lacquered fish and, and deer mounts on the wall oh and you could, like smell it's so small you could smell the blood coming off the butcher counter we don't have those in westchester i assure you <laughs> it's not it's not the vibe there was a spinner rack though i surely miss spinner racks they used to be everywhere you walk into a convenience everywhere store, grocery store there's a spinner rack and my mom would deposit me at the base of it and she told me to sit and be good read comics while she shopped and I never wanted, you know, to bring home chocolate or bubble gum. I wanted, I wanted my cape and spandex. So mm -hmm. I brought home Man Thing. I brought home Warlord. Warlord was an early favorite. Wow! Yeah. Spider Man brought home Batman. Brought home X Men. And I always had a particular fondness for the character of Wolverine. I started collecting seriously around the time that. He became Patch. <laughs> In Madripoor, yeah. Extremely confusing to me. So confusing because it's just the same guy. It's It really is the ultimate Clark Kent moment. It's like he puts on an eye patch and everyone's like, who's this guy? And in this case, a black singlet as well. True, yes. <laughs> and so I was just so confused as to why this guy was Logan, Wolverine, and Patch, and wearing a black singlet, and you know, trying to hide his, I didn't know all the backstory that had brought him. To right. Him. Yeah. So, but, but I was fascinated and felt a strong connection to, you know, and, and maybe this has to do with just who I've become as well. And, you know, this guy who's squat and hairy and lumpy, <laughs> a loner, uh, cigar chomping, uh, whiskey swilling occupant of the frozen North. Uh, it's it's felt a little bit like I'm writing, you know, thinly veiled autobiography. <laughs> That'll happen. I mean, I uh, I connected very profoundly when I was reading as a kid. I was reading my dad's stuff. And so I grew up reading stuff a little bit. I was growing up in the 90s, but I really, it's the 80s material that I'm most attached to. And so Betsy Braddock and Madeline Pryor and Claremont Storm are like three characters that loom very large in my head. I spent all that time fixated on Madeline Pryor, obsessed with the horrible tragedy of her life, and uh, which I can't wait to see what Vita is about to do with her. 
But now as an adult, I am a satanic entity that shouldn't babysit. I think that we all kind of grow into the X-Men we love, right? That is part of the process. <laughs> you that, that early identification with a character. And it doesn't matter if it's a mutant or Indiana Jones or whatever, right? These or fictional Darth, characters Darth really get in you, our heads. You, you use these characters as models, uh, you know, for behavior. Uh, and, and, and that doesn't mean that, you know, <laughs> I have like, uh, a bunch of victims in my past, uh, because <laughs> mind wiped by, you know, shadow organizations or anything. I don't like enough blood to fill a reservoir. Uh, if you do, thankfully you haven't had an origin mini series yet where you remember all of it. So, <laughs> you know, don't worry about it right now. But, but, you know, I can remember, this is a, kind of a sidebar, but reading Stephen King's The Gunslinger. Oh, yeah. And that was a, a pivotal book for me, uh, in part because of the time during which I read it. I was having a rough go in middle school. I was, you know, stealing. I was getting into a lot of fights. I got in trouble for vandalism. Uh, and I was uh, suspended twice from school. And, and my parents were like, you know, something needs to change. I had horrible grades. And and they were pulling me out of one school and putting me into another. And, and I had, you know, this, I was having this sort of shameful existential crisis. And I read that book and it was really clarifying to me. And, and I guess I started to think of Roland of Gilead as a kind of a model for who I wanted to be, which is a bit disturbing <laughs> about giving all that Roland does. If you read the rest of the Dark Tower, yeah, that's that's a little grim, but not unlike Wolverine. I mean, there is a similar Clint Eastwood kind of energy to a lot of that stuff, like that sort of the man alone wandering, what's going to happen? Closing yourself off emotionally, not all healthy things. Right. But for me, it became, uh, you know, a, a way for me to to channel whatever insecurities or channel whatever troubles were you know, racing through my bloodstream at the time. And I ended up, you know, uh, really becoming focused and disciplined and got myself off this sort of destructive path and, and became sort of certain of who I was. And, and I, I owe a lot of that, I think, to that book. It was sort of like, instead of what would Jesus do? I should have had like a, what would Roland, what would Roland Deschamps do? That's <laughs> <laughs> Let that kid fall to his brutal death. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He didn't want to. He didn't want to. So, yeah, to cycle back around, right? Yeah, you know, everybody has their favorite mutant for a reason. And, you know, that's funny, just thinking about the promo materials for 10 Lives. We don't know quite yet, besides that it's time travel, there seems to be phalanx machinery afoot, which, as the world's leading Candy Southern fan, I'm very excited about. But the whole vibe does seem a little bit with Wolverine and this darker self that seems to be in an antagonistic role, maybe, or something like that. There is a bit of a the man in black moved across the desert and the gunslinger followed, or I'm probably misquoting that. But you get what I'm saying. That vibe of Roland and Randall Flagg as these sort of antipodes that are similar... Man, I mean, that's very archetypal, but it's a Wolverine thing. Also, you have Sabretooth, obviously, most famously as the character used for that. But in the 90s, when Sabretooth was 
they were trying to sort of rehab Sabretooth into a hero character because like Venom, those anti-heroes, like they were villain characters who killed lots of people. But now it's the 90s. We're edgy. We're fun. We want to make these characters people you can hang a book on. And so Sabretooth has his like forcible rehab period with Gene and the professor. And then he's on the Mackie X Factor for a while. It doesn't go well, but he's theoretically on the team. And Omega Red, I feel like kind of entered the story around the same time almost to be a new dark Wolverine. He has a metal in his bones that's like adamantium, but the Soviets made it so it's radioactive and cheap. So he's like always pissed that Wolverine, you know, isn't blood poisoned by his metal bones. Wolverine has his black ops past. Omega Red was a serial killer before this happened to him. So it is that through a mirror darkly thing. Is that what appealed to you about bringing him as a character into Logan's story now? Well, I'll address that more generally before I get into it specifically. I mean, if you think about villains, right, the villains are typically either a dark mirror or an opposite of your protagonist. Mm-hmm. You know, look at comics, sure. Like you've got Superman and then you've got Lex Luthor, an opposite. Right. He's absolutely an opposite. It's all brain versus the physicality. And selfishness versus selflessness. Or when you've got characters like Zod or... Mm-hmm, or who's a dark mirror, dark right. Yeah. Then you go beyond comics. Look at Indiana Jones. You know, he finds a dark mirror in Raiders and Bella, mm-hmm. uh, who has the same sort of skill set. And motivations, like, oh, I'm doing archaeology, but, right. but for Indiana evil. Jones, right. <laughs> for evil. Indiana Jones is always going, you know, this belongs in the museum. Right. And Belloc wants power and he wants money. Yes. Or you look at Sherlock Holmes and... And Moriarty, right. Same dude, in a way. I loved that story Teeny did in the Pride issue about Mystique and Moriarty, because one of my favorite Marvel Universe things is that Mystique is Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. That is a great bit. I would love a mini that's just Raven and Irene in 1895 and just like all of that stuff. I think that would be great. Make it happen. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. And you know, if you're if you're doing it right, your villain is an externalization of some internal conflict in the protagonist, mm-hmm. right? Like we look at Batman who has the greatest rogues gallery next to Spider-Man. I might even put Batman ahead. Yeah. Not to insult Spider-Man's rogues guy, but those are the two. Those are the two. So if you're doing it right, uh, a story about Two-Face, if you're writing Batman, is a story about whether Bruce Wayne is the man and Batman the mask, or is Batman the man and Bruce Wayne is the mask? Right. Or are they both at once? Like Two-Face, you know, it's that question. And if you're doing it right, a story about Dr. Freeze is a story about Bruce's emotional coldness. And if you're doing it right, a story about Scarecrow is about fear, uh, fear that they both experienced as children that traumatized them and motivated them in splintering directions and so on, right? Right. So when I think about that and these core wounds, these key insights, however you want to think of it, you know, they're, they're present everywhere. They're present outside of comics as well. If you look at the opening of Sleepless in Seattle, the very first shot is of Tom Hanks and his kid standing over the grave of, you know, the, the wife and mother. Mm-hmm. That injury, which is not so dissimilar to the injury incurred upon uh, Bruce Wayne when he's in that alley with Thomas and Martha, and there's pearls and blood strewn everywhere, like that injury gives rise to motivation, it sends a hero on a journey and in conflict with these antagonists. And with Wolverine, you have 
in terms of the older material, Sabretooth's murder of Silver Fox is absolutely that backstory element. And Sabretooth is the ultimate, right? That's the greatest, the principal Wolverine villain. So if I'm taking on a series, and this gets back to your other question about me coming into the... So rewind a second. It is October of 2018, and I am walking into uh, the Halloween reboot. (laughs) And the phone rings, and it's Hickman. And he says, I think you'd kill it on X-Force. And that's a good Hickman. I took him quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> the murder book. Um, it sure is. You know, in the in the months prior to that, we had been talking. Uh, I had looked at, I had signed an NDA. I had looked at his Hawks Pox, his House of X Powers of 10 Bible. I'd read it all over. We'd had a few phone conversations prior to that. And it was just a question of like, what do you want to do? And so that clarified in that moment. In January then of 2019, we had a summit. Mm-hmm. This is it, you know, Marvel HQ in New York. And it's me, it's Jerry, it's Teeny, it's a few others. Jordan's in the room, uh, CB's in the room. And, and we're breaking story. And this is before Hickman's even written a single script, right? So what we're doing is generating, we're talking about his series, but we're generating other stories. He always referred to it as like building a garden. Yeah. Like what are we planting for later? Here's the foundation. Here's the foundation in Hawks Pox. What, what can you grow? You claim a patch of land, you grow your own garden from there. And so we were horse trading over characters. Like we had all these three by five cards. Yeah. Tini said it was very much like a sports draft or something like yeah. that. <laughs> and, and, and part of that, and I won't get into too many of these details that bog it all down, but to get back to your point about Sabretooth, you know, part of that is who are your villains going to be? Who are your big, you know, big storylines going to be about and so on. We didn't have everything mapped out, but we knew that this was going to be, you know, a story that had legs. We had real estate, we had rope. Uh, so Sabretooth being the big bad of the Wolverine canon, to put him in right away, is like sending the hobbits to Mordor by the end of chapter one, a fellowship. Mm-hmm. You know, you want that to be simmering in the background instead. I was just talking to a friend of mine on the show. It was in the episode I recently did on Valerie Cooper, a character who I find endlessly fascinating and hilarious. My guest hadn't heard yet about Victor Laval's Sabretooth series and is a Sabretooth fan, but was just a little behind, a couple months behind on everything. And uh, he was just so thrilled that that kind of plant and payoff where something comes back two years later, almost three years later, it's hard to get the kind of runway to do that in modern superhero comics. So much is constantly in flux and particularly in the X-Men franchise, which for about 15 years, it was all over the place there is something really satisfying about the destiny plot coming back after Hickman seeds it early on about the crucible plot happening. And then all of this stuff happening that spins out of that. And then this resolution we just had in trial of Magneto, where now it's not necessary anymore, things like that. And the saber tooth thing in house of X is a great example because that's, that's Chekhov's saber tooth, right? Like we're putting him in a box at some point, we're going to let him out. But first 
let's see what we can do and what happens in a world where Logan isn't always worried that Sabretooth is going to show up. And I think that what you've shown is there are plenty of other things to keep him occupied. <laughs> yeah, I'm a novelist. I, I write comics in a novelistic fashion. And one of the things I've recognized, you know, having worked at DC prior to Marvel and, and not just looking at my own work, but looking at what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of patience anymore for five issue or 12 issue arcs. Right. And so even if you have an idea for one, the best thing you can do with it is break it up. If you know you have that runway, break it. And, and you can think of sort of the way in which I've designed a lot of these narratives as a turnstile or, or as me juggling chainsaws. The plots keep coming back. Here comes... Here's the chainsaw in hand, buzzing uh, perilously, and then boom, it's out of view. And, you know, there's another chainsaw in my hand. <laughs> right. Are we dealing with the vampires today? Are we dealing with Solemn today? What are we doing? You know, that kind of stuff. You wait long enough, though, and that chainsaw is going to, you know, slide back into view. Exactly. And and there might be a 12-issue arc you're actually reading. Right. But it's broken up over several years. And so people can jump on and off. You know, it, it creates just a constant sort of tension, suspension uh, that makes people lean forward. Well, and that's very X-Men because Claremont liked to write that way. You would have these subplots because he had all the runway in the world. You would have these subplots that went on for years where little things would just prop back up. And you'd be like, oh, right. I fr-. And that's why those little editor boxes of like, go back to this issue if you have no idea what's going on were so important. <laughs> Exactly. And, and, and with Omega Red, uh, you know, we were looking for a big bad mm-hmm. who could sort of satisfy the vacancy left behind by Sabretooth. It's hard to talk about Omega Red, given, you know, just contextualize everything. We just go back a few minutes to our own conversation. You know, it's hard to talk about Omega Red without talking about Wolverine when it comes to understanding why it's important. Right. So here I am looking at the character of Wolverine and trying to find a dark mirror. Right. And and Logan is somebody who has a history of violence. Mm-hmm. Right. He's he's burdened by all the blood he's spilled, uh, especially as an agent of Weapon X. Right. Team X. And he's always carrying this this guilt around with him, especially the suspicious knowledge that people are going to use him potentially as a weapon and you have something similar going on with omega red and that he has been used and used again right he is he's been built as a weapon a weapon of state power in the same way that wolverine was a weapon of state power yeah and so there's an equivalency there that i find interesting that even though they're divergent. They're on parallel tracks emotionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can you can think about the divergence in in that there's two sort of two different backstories on Arcady, and in one of them he's a serial killer, and the other he's a killer as well, but a Soviet soldier. Like there's these two different sort of backstory versions of it, but he has he's a, he's considered a, like a bad dude. Yeah, like a revoltingly evil character. 
I had forgotten this until I did some rereading for this episode, but the backstory Larry Hama establishes for him in that Maverick one-shot in the 90s is that he wasn't just a murderer, like he specifically was a predatory murderer of little girls. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm interested in characters who are not just evil. You know, if, if a character is just evil to the core, I find them unbelievable. I, I want a character who's complicated. Mm-hmm. And so you've got like this, this devilish background, and yet he himself has been victimized by the Russian state, and he's sort of gone through different moments of rebirth himself, so that you're not quite sure how much remains of that, you know, that person who used to exist. Right. How much is that and how much is this new entity that has been created over experimentation, over mental reprogramming, over suspended animation, all of the stuff that Wolverine himself is also dealing with in yeah. terms of questions of identity. And there's another there's another parallel, right? The the fact that there's with the uncertainty of memory, and Logan's been mind wiped and memory planted so many times that he can't trust his own brain. He's a constant detective of his own past. But if you don't know your own history, who are you? Right. I mean, if we erased everything from your past right now and you just suddenly found yourself in this Jason Bourne moment, who, who are you? Uh, and, and so I'm really interested in that, that possibility of, of juncture, of, of pivoting out of what one was and into something new. It's it's the same sort of pivot that you see existing in Krakoa itself. Mm-hmm. And this new nation where folks who were previously villains, enemies, are now allied in this island nation. Yeah, and one of the most interesting things to me about this era is which villains, and this goes back to the saber-tooth question, which villains can you find common ground with for the good of your species and find some kind of political compromise with, right? So Apocalypse and Selene, those are people who you can reason with. They're lawful evil characters. They have motivations that are logical. Mr. Sinister, although he is an absolute piece of garbage in just about every way and isn't even really a mutant, is someone who, again, he wants things that make sense. You can make an Operation Paperclip kind of deal to secure Sinister's technology. It is going to be a moral failing at the heart of your new nation, but which new nations don't have those, right? I think that that's all very interesting. Then there are characters like Sabretooth who simply won't play ball. And I think Omega Red is interesting because he also is a character who just won't play ball. And that's why that arc with him and Dracula in your Wolverine run was interesting to me because it seemed entirely plausible the entire time that either side could be right about this. Like, is he compromised or is he not? I don't know, because he's unpredictable. And so that X factor, so to speak, to the character is something that is contradictory to the Krakoan concept and therefore makes him a compelling villain to use in this era. I can't wait to see what Steve does coming up with Cassandra Nova, because that's, of course, the ultimate chaotic evil you can't reason with. And I think that that is the difference between these villain characters in the Krakoan age. And that has been really interesting to see play out. Yeah. And, you know, the vampires showed up, you know, in Wolverine for a reason. Mm -hmm. Because one of those 
qualities of his character that I'm interested in is he's essentially undying. Is the immortality, right? Logan is eternal. And and what does that mean? What does that mean that you develop a sense of indifference for human life when you have a century plus of living under yourself? Certainly Celine does. I mean, it, it, you see how an apocalypse does on some level when it is outside of his ethos. Like when you live that long. In Wolverine's case, it's almost the opposite at times. You know, he has his nihilistic moments where he's like, you know, we're all just. Sure, yeah. You know, specks of dust on a piece of rock spinning through an infinite void. Sure, he has those moments, but it's almost like he recognizes how vulnerable some people are. And he tries to protect those, especially, uh, you know, from the jaws of the universe. Yeah, he's definitely a character who wants to prevent other people from experiencing the kind of suffering that he's experienced, which is a different reaction than what someone like Omega Red has, which is I've suffered, so everybody else should also suffer is kind of the vibe, right? He is one step away from being a vampire himself. Mm-hmm. A bloodsucker, right? The carbonadium, the Russian knockoff, of adamant, poisoning his body. And so he has to... He has to suck the life force off of other people, battle back against that. So, you know, by putting him into this vampire story, what I was trying to do was sort of triangulate Wolverine, the vampires, Omega Red, and explore that prismatically, in a prismatic sort of way. And now, you know, we're at a critical juncture where, you know, he has been brought onto Krakoa. He is recognized as an agent of the vampire nation and beast blows him the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> he detonates the carbonadium synthesizer in his chest, kills him and then mind wipes him. Yes. But he doesn't remember his own assassination, brings him back to resurrection with a new carbonadium, carbonadium synthesizer that has a homing beacon in it and surveillance the tracker in it and he then uses omega red as a kind of double agent unknowing double agent mm -hmm. now omega red has been victimized by krakoa right i mean that is the thing is he's one of the worst guys in the world right so it's not that you feel necessarily bad for omega red but it's one of those it's the cia question that you have raised throughout x-force which is you know, Hank is doing all of these things as part of a security apparatus, but even if you're doing this to enemies of your homeland, even if you're doing this to someone like Omega Red, who is without conscience and is a bad guy, there are some moral lines that it is pretty horrendous to cross regardless. And what he's done with Omega Red is pretty awful. I mean, I was, yeah. my stomach was a little turned by it, which I imagine was the idea, right? Oh boy, yeah. I, want, yeah. I, want, <laughs> I mean, from the very beginning when we were in that summit, you know, I pitched X-Force as the CIA of the mutant nation. Mm -hmm. There are going to be some dark deals done in the shadows around this, you know, sunlit paradise. Yeah, well, nations are built in the real world on often the unseen suffering of people elsewhere. Look at what's all over the New York Times for the past few days regarding mm -hmm. the bombing campaigns that have killed so many civilians. Yeah. That we tried to keep under wraps. I'm, I'm focusing on these things and, and making the central thesis of, of the series moral confusion. And Omega Red fits neatly into that algorithm. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be especially central to 
the 10 lives of Wolverine, the next deaths of Wolverine event. He's in the promo material. You have referred to the spooky phalanx-looking Wolverine as Omega Wolverine, which is Omega an interesting Wolverine. appellation. I assume that that has some kind of connection between the two characters, but I'm sure you can't tell us more than that. I can't tell you too much about that, but the idea that we were broaching earlier about the many different iterations of Wolverine you know, this doesn't just look to the past, it looks to the future. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it's very much aligned with House of X powers of 10. Yeah, it's that additive notion that Hickman has been really insistent on in this era, which is that everything should be adding something to the characters, creating opportunities for new story, creating avenues for new pathways. Yeah, that was absolutely one of our directives during that first summit. Don't break shit. <laughs> People have been breaking shit for the past 15 years. Yeah. What we're going to do right now is add. As someone whose investment in Big Two Comics is primarily X-Men oriented, it was a really... I mean, I fell off for quite a while after the decimation, pick it up occasionally, but for the most part, I felt like they had broken this thing that I love. And so while this era, I mean, you know, it's not for everybody. I'm sure there are people who think that this era and Krakoa and the villains being friends with the heroes or at least allied with the heroes is like breaking whatever. To me, it is the most fruitful and enjoyable era of the X-Men in my lifetime. I mean, I'm born in 88. So the Claremont era ends a couple years later. The early 90s stuff, there's some fun energy to that. Age of Apocalypse is great. And then it kind of, outside of the Grant Morrison years, you're really on a roller coaster where you just don't know where you're going to be. And for so many years, it seemed like the X-Men were just literally a, a toy you could break, you know, as much as you needed to. Well, one of the things that oftentimes makes a speculative story, whether it's science fiction or horror or fantasy, what makes it resonate is that it channels cultural unease, or channels the cultural moment. In some yeah. Right. Frankenstein being an age old example of this, where that story is about the fear of science and technology, the fear of man playing God during this moment of societal change. Absolutely. You know, here you have the steam engine here. You have medical procedures that were considered cutting edge at the time. Electricity was, uh, being used for the first time to, you know, spark frog legs into movement and, and, and on and on and on. And, and here comes this book that captures all those anxieties and ambitions. And yeah, in the same way that Dracula addresses foreign threat, addresses female sexual liberation, addresses all kinds of things yeah. that were social issues very hotly discussed at the time. Yeah. You look at what's happening right now, and, you know, we can talk about everything from BLM to the Me Too movement. You have people who have been marginalized, who have been victimized, saying, that's enough. Right. That is what you see in this new era of X-Men. Right. The mutants aren't going to take it anymore. They said, that's enough. And they formed their, their nation and declared sovereignty. And we're not going to right, have that fissure and crumble. Uh, there can be tensions, and, and, and it can be a tricky balancing act. But this is something that's going to endure. I think because if you think about the message behind it, it's essential that it endures. Yeah. I mean, I, as a Jewish reader, I've also always been very keyed into that metaphoric aspect. 
you know, not to get too deep into Israel-Palestine, but there's been a lot of people who've commented on Krakoa being established as a minority nation state and similarities and differences. And I've talked about it at length in this podcast, especially with Spencer Ackerman, who is actually an expert on foreign policy with the Pulitzer and someone who I trust to talk about these issues with me in, in an expansive way. I view Krakoa as situationally and contextually very different from Israel, in part because no one is being displaced you know, none of that is happening because Krakoa invited them to be there and nobody else was there at the time, right? But there is something very interesting to me about the idea of a diaspora minority group saying we're going to create a nation that is our nation and then doing anything and everything, including vast moral overreaches to protect that. In that way, I mean, X-Force is also very much the Krakoan Mossad. Lots of different states have security apparatuses that do things like this. All superpowers do, certainly. And it's just very, like, I was very moved by uh, the end of Way of X when Kurt realizes that the sacred land is the people, not the land itself. Because that, to me as a Jew, is how I feel about the Jewish people. And it's not about territory to me, right? And those are very hot-button topics that, again, we don't have to dig too deep into, but I, I just think it's fascinating to see in the same way that a lot of Black readers have talked about how this reflects their experience, like the way that Krakoa presents a possibility in a science fictional way for a minority nation state without occupation, without displacement, and then says, if we could do that, would it be good would it be bad? Would it be something in the middle? And I think something in the middle is always more interesting. It becomes more about the question of nationhood, period. Like, is it possible to create a just or righteous nation with borders that has an in-group or an out-group? Is that possible? I love that your book, and I think uh, Ewing Sword, with all the Abigail Brand stuff, has been doing, you've been doing really fascinating work, both of you, on keying into the realpolitik and the international relations stuff that that would necessarily create. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the character of Beast, I was talking before about how I'm not interested in one-dimensional villains. Mm -hmm. Case of Beast, you know, you know what his code is. He's making these terrible decisions, morally questionable choices, but you understand why. Mm -hmm. That he has a utilitarian code to him. He believes in the greatest good for the greatest number of mutants. And that might mean you have to kill some people. Yeah, it's an interesting turnaround for him as a character because I've always seen him as a character who is less interested in mutant solidarity than most of the X-Men are. And I like that once, I mean, he obviously had a huge problem with Scott and Emma's X-Force back during the Utopia period. And I think there's something very interesting about that man who, who says, I'm the moral arbiter, I'm the one who decides these things, but you hand him the reins of power and immediately he says, well, this is righteous now because I'm in charge of it, yeah. which is very real to politics, right? I mean, the question is whether power corrupts, which is the old adage, but I think often, this is sort of like George R. R. Martin's perspective on it, like power attracts the kind of people who are very corruptible. If you want to rule in that way, you are probably someone who has something in you that is dark. You probably shouldn't be the person on the throne if you want to be the person on the throne, that sort of idea. When I was debating how to organize X-Force, 
uh, I decided that there would be a head and a fist. There would be the intelligence unit and there would be the head of the wet work unit, the field ops unit. Right. Uh, so Beast and Wolverine are, even though it's an ensemble series, they they're are the leads, though, I would say, lead. of the book. Yeah. And their principles are at odds and aligned at the same time. And I've known exactly how I wanted to end X-Force, my run on X-Force, which isn't happening anytime soon. But when it does happen, there's going to be a cataclysmic divide between the two Mm -hmm. and a time of reckoning. Oh, see, so that's interesting. I, and obviously you can't give away a story, (laughs) but I have wondered if the fall of the beast, so to speak, isn't coming sooner than that. I've been really interested in the dyad that you've set up between Hank and Tessa uh, Sage throughout the book, because She's a character I really love. One of the more popular episodes of this show is an episode where the artist Valentine Smith and I, she's like the biggest Sage fan in the world. We just talk about all the reasons why Sage deserves the world, is one of the original X-Men, yada, 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 you know, all of that. It's been really interesting to see her as someone who also has morally compromised herself her entire life at the direction of Charles Xavier become a moral conscience to Hank because Sage is not the character you would expect really to be anyone's moral conscience. She's perfectly pragmatic and utilitarian. Her brain works as a logical computer and she's killed plenty of people with her own hands. So it's interesting when you see Hank doing war crimes and Sage like, "Mm." but she doesn't have the institutional power that someone like Hank does. She was Xavier's shadow operative. She was X-Force before there was X-Force, right? Hank, as the person who has the say, who has the power, people keep asking me, like, when do you think Beast is going to be pulled from X-Force? I'm like, I don't know. When are we going to put Henry Kissinger in jail? We're not. He's going to die at 100 years old. That's an interesting thing to me because that is realistic. People like this don't face consequences for their actions most of the time. But I like the social consequences that do seem to be forming. And I've wondered if there's going to be like a sage and beast schism with certain characters like Domino perhaps being on Sage's side and other characters being on Hank's side. And, you know, whether or not that's an outright conflict or whether it's an internal conflict, I'm I'm interested to see where that oh, goes. Your, your story instincts are exactly right. I do edit for a living, so I'd hope so. <laughs> and without giving too much away, I mean, the, you know, Sage is on an upward trajectory. She is the person in the chair who is feeling more and more uncomfortable with some of the decisions made. Uh, unit uh, and pushing back against Beast. And Beast, in the meantime, has, you know, uh, sort of a physical manifestation of of hubris that's occurring. You see him growing more and more bloated as time goes by. You've mentioned that before, and that I've seen some I used to be very, very overweight myself, very heavy. Uh, That's been like a lifelong struggle for me. How do you see that aspect of the character right now? And how, how are you hoping to avoid like that being kind of a fat is evil kind of tropey thing? Sure, because sure. I've seen a couple people wonder about that when you've said that in interviews. And I'm not, not to be confrontational, but it is something that I've thought about. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm speaking of it in, in the wrong way. I'm thinking of him as kind of like an Orson Welles figure. Almost the way that, alcoholism bloats you physically. Sage is on a parallel track, and to talk about her in just a second, but Beast has lost his eye recently. Mm -hmm. I began to lose hair as well. Yeah. He is no longer bounding about. 
You rarely see him hanging upside down. Like he's becoming. He's not doing the limber, bouncing bee stuff. What I'm most interested in is that he's so consumed by his mind that he's become essentially like a brain, like a self-absorbed brain. He's his own center of gravity. He's not thinking about his body. And so we're seeing his body no, start yeah, to deteriorate exactly. somewhat. Kate is abusing herself as well. I've been setting up mm-hmm. a problem with alcohol. Yes. Uh, and and that's going to manifest itself. Which Valentine and I were very proud of ourselves because just a couple weeks before that issue, we did that episode and we were like, and Valentine's in recovery. And so we were talking about how we felt like a natural arc for Sage would be my brain is so fast that I'm abusing substances. And so the second that that was on the page, we were like, wow, we feel again, like story instincts. If you read enough stories and you care enough about the characters, you start to see these connections. But I think that's, I thought that was a brilliant take and I'm interested to see where that goes. She's a human calculator. She's a human computer. She's so consumed by these millions of of equations that are streaming through her brain at any given moment. and, And given the heaviness of what she's working with, right? You can't blame her for wanting to quiet that. Right. Turn it off a little bit. Exactly. And so in both of these cases, both of these characters, what I'm talking about is, and we see this in our own bodies, uh, you know, there are consequences for uh, emotions mm-hmm. and they're, they're hurting themselves uh, in a way. There's an intentionality about there, about that for, for, for Sage, for Beast, it's more, just a consequence of his complete self-absorption. Mm-hmm. So what I'm talking about here is uh, a sense of decay. And, and that decay is going to be, you know, something that carries over to the island as well. We talked about not breaking things. Yeah. But we've been adding things for a long time now. And they're... Well, the machinery has been building under the island for two years. Yeah. I mean... ahead. This next year is going to be especially difficult for the mutants. I think that's good because you can't go from something as provocative and we've won as planet-size X-Men and then not have the pendulum swing the other way, right? I was delighted. I was I was very, very proud that I kind of saw it coming, not the particulars of it, but the twist at the end of S.W.O.R.D. with Abigail Brand was very satisfying to me because we need that. Like, there need to be spanners in the works because otherwise there's no story. A lot of fans get stressed out when terrible things are happening to the characters. And I understand that because we love the characters, but that is what the story is. I mean, if if they're just hanging out at the Green Lagoon singing karaoke, which you did have them do once, which I appreciated very much, I'd love to see more slice of life stuff like that. I'd love to see the Infinity comic maybe dig into more slice of life Krakoa stuff. But in a book like X-Force, in a book like X-Men, in a book like Excalibur going into Knights of X, the dominoes have to fall at some point, no pun intended for Ms. Thurman, but if nothing cracks, if nothing fissures, if there's no anxiety to reading the comic, then it becomes boring. And it becomes not a story, it just becomes a character study. And I think that the best comics, especially the best X-Men comics, are character studies that push the character through a lot of adversity. Yeah. And and the mistake that some fans make is that when a character changes, that's it. A light switch has gone off. Mm-hmm. Not the way humans work, right? Let's say you're an alcoholic, right? You might fall off the wagon. Right. After you get sober. Uh, and, and it might take, if you're in a, you know, abusive relationship, on average, it takes 
people six times to leave that partner. Yes. So in the case of Kid Omega, if you think about him as a microcosmic example of some of the things we're talking about with Krakoa, maybe he is moving towards positive change and then receding backsliding, you know, a simple journey. Right. I will say, I personally have a lot of trouble with that character because of where he starts and where he went. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Grant Morrison new X-Men. And I think that that character as sort of an alt-right provocateur was a very prescient character. And the way the character evolved over time in the 15 years that we talked about earlier, I found very strange. Sort of the way that he became like a a comedy character or even a, a sort of heroic protagonist figure seemed very odd to me. I like the balance that you've struck. In X-Force, I said recently, it's like the first time I've been able to stand Quentin Quire in a long time, just reading about him. I still don't like the kid. But previously, it felt to me like, because he does tie very closely into the sociopolitical stuff that's very real about the X-Men. And there were times when I felt like that character was being absolved without doing the work or, you know, and so I like that it feels like you're looking at the character more holistically. Is it weird that he's dating one of the cuckoos after everything in Grant Morrison? Yes, I think we were supposed to find that weird. I certainly found it distressing. Yeah. It's also weird to be working with Apocalypse. It sure is. And the fact that all of her sisters are like, what are you doing? This is so weird. And if this is about us or about mom, like, you need to stop this rebellious, weird phase. Like, we get it. Message received. But like, chill out. Now, that itself is a potentially codependent unhealthy. I mean, the, the separate cuckoos are the ultimate codependent relationship, right? So I've enjoyed seeing the expansiveness with which you treat some of these characters. Colossus is another one where I've often said there has been no story told with Colossus since he came back on the break world that has justified bringing back that character is the way that I felt about it because that death was so momentous at the end of the legacy virus storyline and the character in part, much like Omega red because of the sliding time scale is a cold war relic that doesn't quite fit anymore. And I'd be interested after we do the character file to talk about a little bit about Mikhail Rasputin and the stuff you're doing there There is a way in which Marvel Russia, Black Widow is the same way, is frozen in the Winter Soldier, frozen in the KGB Cold War era in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect our real world. In Colossus, Karma is another character like this because she's so tied to the Vietnam War. It becomes hard to figure out what his politics are now, what his life is now. And this is the first story, I will say, with Colossus that has made me sit up and take notice in a long time. I'm very interested to see where it goes. I think the idea, again, like this is just my story logicing it out as a fan, but Colossus is a character everyone tells us is a nice guy. And that's been the story with him since the 70s. And he used to be a nice guy. The stuff with Kitty was perhaps ill-advised, let's say. But he was always trying to come from a place of generosity of spirit and of morality. And then in the 90s, he really falls off after Ileana dies. He becomes a pretty abusive, scary guy in a lot of ways. I like that this story is saying... I mean, in Inferno, seating him on the council, which I'm sure is something you suggested coming out of your plot, because I know how collaborative this all is. The way that someone like Aurora or Kurt, who grew up with this guy as their brother, essentially, will be like, oh, Piotr's the best guy. Even Kate, who has had her ups and downs with him, is like, oh, he's at the end of the day a good guy, you know, et cetera, because that's her experience of him, or at least what she's 
told herself about him in her head for perhaps various reasons, to have that then in the story become, okay, but sometimes like the nice guy does terrible things because that's where the story goes. There's something very meta-theatrical about the chronicler, obviously. Like it is, he's the writer of the story and Colossus kills his girlfriend because the writer told him to. But what does that mean? How much of that is Colossus? How much of that is the writer? How much of that is meta-narrative and the way superhero comics function? I don't know. I'm interested to see where it's going because I, I can tell you that that is a long tail plan that you have. Yeah, let's talk about that after the case file. Yeah, we'll do that. You know, that's actually, it's probably a good moment to pause for the Streber character file in Omega Red. You'll notice we're not talking too much about Omega Red. That's because, I'm going to be honest, guys, there isn't that much to Omega Red. When I suggested him to Ben, it was because Ben was like, you know, I don't want to get too, like, let's do the full encyclopedia entry on the character. And as you know, some of these episodes are like that because some people do want to do that. And I thought, well, who's a character? I mean, here's the thing about Omega Red. He shows up, he's scary, he's in the Capcom fighting game, he's got big tentacles, there's not a ton going on under the hood. He's more symbolically interesting. And I think that that's the way he's been used here. And it's really interesting. So I'm going to take you through his history from the John Byrne and Jim Lee introduction up through Weapon X Force and all that crazy stuff that happened for a minute there where he and Lady Deathstrike were good guys for a sec, which was crazy. I love Greg Pak, but that was a wild turn to me. And then we will come back for more with Ben Percy. We'll talk about his work on X-Force and on Wolverine. We'll talk about the event to come, and then we will answer questions from listeners like you. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Arkady Rosevich, better known as Omega Red, is a prominent X-Men villain of the 90s, most noted as a rival of franchise mainstay Wolverine. Created by John Byrne and Jim Lee in Byrne's brief return to the title following Chris Claremont's abrupt departure, Arkady is a Soviet super soldier whose skeleton has been bonded with the radioactive metal carbonadium in a sort of mockery of Logan's adamantium. He employs implanted tentacle weapons to drain the life force from others and keep himself alive. While his star dimmed somewhat after his 90s heyday, Omega Red is returning in a big way in Ben Percy's current run and is scheduled to play a big role in the upcoming event Ten Lives and X Deaths of Wolverine. Omega Red first appears in 1991's X-Men 4, the first issue after Claremont left the title, but his arrival is anticipated two issues earlier, when Matsuo Sureyaba, leader of the Hand, bribes a Russian general in order to acquire a stasis pod in which something is being kept in suspended animation. Using the Hand's dark magic, Matsuo reanimates Arkady, tasking him and the mutant Fenris twins with an attack on Wolverine, who Arkady hopes can give him a lost item called the Carbonadium Synthesizer. What exactly is the Carbonadium Synthesizer, you might ask? Well, I read a whole bunch of Omega Red comics for this episode, and I am frankly still not sure. Shout out to the writers at the ever-amazing UncannyXMen.net, especially Monolith in this case, who really tried to piece this all together in an Omega Red profile. But even after reading their page on him to try to understand this better, I am super lost. So we're going to wing it here, folks. Flashbacks show us that Arkady was enhanced in the Soviet program, much like the way Logan was enhanced by Weapon X. Instead of adamantium alloy, he was bonded with carbonadium, a cheap knockoff developed by the Soviets based on stolen notes. He also has carbonadium tentacles, because why not? Decades ago, when the CIA unit called Team X, including Wolverine, Sabretooth, and Maverick, attempted to recover an American double agent, Janice Hollenbeck, from the Soviets, they were surprised by Omega Red. While Hollenbeck was killed, Team X escaped with the carbonadium synthesizer, which is the only thing that enables Arkady to regulate the poisonous metal in his body. Without it, he will wither and die over time. So instead, he uses his mutant power, Death Factor Spores, no, I cannot explain this, to steal life force from others and stay healthy. 
is it kind of fucked up that our heroes wouldn't let Omega Red have the synthesizer, instead forcing him to kill lots of innocent people to survive? It sure is, and this whole plot has frankly always had me scratching my head. So don't worry about it, I guess. Anyway, in the present under new writer Scott Lobdell, Omega Red kicks the shit out of Wolverine, and we see that his death factor can disrupt Logan's healing factor. Maverick, meanwhile, secretly recovers the synthesizer from where they hid it years ago, Janice Hollenbeck's grave. Wolverine tasks him with keeping it away from Omega Red. The character returns in early 1993 under new writer Fabian Niciesa, now employed by the Russian government to help them apprehend the evil mutant called the Soul Skinner. The Soul Skinner overpowers Omega Red and psychically forces him to battle the X-Men. Omega Red then hops over to Iron Man for an arc where he battles AIM, as their super scientist Modam was once a KGB agent who betrayed him. Iron Man and AIM call a truce of sorts to battle Omega Red. The following year, he turns up in the pages of Cable, written by Niciesa, where he's approached by the Acolytes. They claim they can help him find a method of regulating his carbonadium without the carbonadium synthesizer, and we learn he has a past with the acolyte Katu Cap, whose arms he ripped off back in the day. Katu has robot arms now. Anyway, the Acolytes send Omega Red on a hunt for parts needed to stabilize himself, eventually directing him to their base in Antarctica. They then sneakily ask Cable to help them stop Omega Red from attacking their base. It turns out the stabilizing process will release Omega Red's death spores across the entire Earth if performed within Earth's atmosphere, so Katu Kaf tries to take him out in a suicide attack, apparently killing them both. A year later, Omega Red returns alive in Scott Lobdell's Generation X, where we learn he has a history with Sean Cassidy, the former X-Man Banshee. Back when Sean was an Interpol agent decades earlier, he investigated a series of murders that turned out to be the work of a pre-bonding process Arkady Rosevich, who was on the run from his Soviet masters and serial killing his way across Europe. Arkady, afraid of his inevitable recapture by the Soviets, tormented Sean in a cat-and-mouse game in the hope Sean would kill him. He finally provoked Sean by murdering a colleague, Inspector Magritte Devereaux, but Sean arrested him instead of killing him. He was then sent back to the Soviets and became Omega Red. In the present, Omega Red attacks Sean and nearly kills his new students, Generation X. Luckily, one of the students, Chamber, has a mutation that makes him immune to Omega Red's death spores and manages to defeat him. In a 1996 Maverick one-shot by Larry Hama and Wilfred Santiago, Omega Red fights Maverick and his allies in an effort to recover the carbonadium synthesizer. He eventually tracks him to Weapon X's old facility in Canada, where Maverick has hidden it, but he's deceived by a psychic ally of Maverick's and buried by an airstrike. This Maverick one-shot also gives us a backstory element that's particularly unpleasant. Arkady Rosevich was not simply a serial killer, but specifically a Soviet soldier who preyed on and murdered pretty little girls. Most later writers have not mentioned this detail. Anyway, he's all better again by 1997, where he teams up with the Black Widow in a Daredevil story to battle a Russian general turned crime lord in New York City. Black Widow obviously betrays him. That same month, he pops over to the Howard Mackie X-Factor to attack Sabretooth, hoping he can trade Sabretooth to Maverick for the synthesizer, but Sabretooth kicks his ass. In a 1998 story in the Maverick solo series written by Jorge Gonzalez, Omega Red is working for another Russian crime lord. He attacks an AIM laboratory to steal technology for this new boss, but when he finds out Maverick is around, he goes rogue to attack Maverick. Maverick kicks his ass. Are you getting the vibe here? At the same time, in an odd story in the Quicksilver solo by John Estrander, Omega Red is working with Pyro, Avalanche, and Feral to help the Acolytes find a cure for the legacy virus. Shenanigans ensue with the High Evolutionary, and I gotta be honest, I don't care. Later that year, he returns in the miniseries X-Men Liberators by Joseph Harris and Phil Jimenez, where he's working for the Russians again. But three years later, in 2001, he shows up in Frank Thierry's run on the Wolverine solo back in Manhattan, now working for the same Russian crime lord he once attacked with Black Widow. He's approached by Sabretooth, who hires him and Lady Deathstrike to get Wolverine once and for all. They do a bunch of dirty work for Sabretooth before he, obviously, betrays them. 
In a 2006 arc of Wolverine Origins by Daniel Way and Steve Dillon, Omega Red is yet again hunting Maverick in the Carbonadium Synthesizer. It's basically the thing that he does. This time, he kidnaps former X-Man Jubilee, who recently lost her powers in the Decimation, and keeps her as a hostage while he tracks down the Synthesizer. He ends up captured by S.H.I.E.L.D. Two years later, toward the end of Ed Brubaker's run on Uncanny X-Men, it turns out Russian intelligence managed to get S.H.I.E.L.D. to extradite him. They've since been torturing him in the Red Room where they created Black Widow, and they sick him on three X-Men, Wolverine, Colossus, and Nightcrawler, who've been traveling in Russia. He ends up captured by S.H.I.E.L.D. again. The following year, he returns to Wolverine Origins, where he's being manipulated by the villain Romulus. Do not worry about Romulus. He murders Romulus's agent Wildchild and finally secures the Carbonadium Synthesizer, but then attacks Wolverine to prove himself to Romulus. Wolverine ends up stabbing Omega Red with the Muramasa Blade, which negates healing factors, and Omega Red is shocked to find himself actually dying. Then he dies! He makes a cameo in Hell the following year in Jason Aaron's Wolverine story, Wolverine Goes to Hell, in which Wolverine goes to hell. While he's dead, Rick Remender creates some new Russian super soldier villains patterned after him who make trouble for X-Force, but you don't need to worry about them. Seven years after his cameo in Hell, Omega Red's mystically resurrected by the Russian Mafia in Mark Guggenheim's X-Men Gold. One of the mafiosos turns out to be Colossus and Magic's long-lost uncle, who manipulates Magic and forces her to stabilize Omega Red's unstable power. He's once again defeated by Wolverine and remanded to the custody of Sickle, a Russian equivalent to S.H.I.E.L.D. He next appears in Weapon X by Greg Pak, Fred Van Lente, and Yildare Sinar, where we learn that he has a brother named Vasily, who is now the director of Sickle. Sickle tasks him with assassinating General Toma Zaslon, who is pro-mutant, but he's convinced to betray his masters by Sabretooth, now a good guy because of the company-wide event Axis altering his morality. Do not worry about it. Omega Red joins Sabretooth's new heroic Weapon X squad and betrays his brother, who is killed by General Zaslon, who turns out to be a mutant herself. Zaslan assumes command of Sickle and declares Weapon X friends of Russia. Omega Red starts to believe he could become a productive member of society and continues with the team as they become the mercenary group Weapon X Force. They end up tangling with a cult led by Reverend William Stryker, don't worry about it, and eventually travel to hell to battle Stryker there. This plot involves a Zazzle, guys, and you simply don't need to worry about it. In the 2018 franchise-wide event X-Men Disassembled, Omega Red is one of the four mutants transformed by Nate Gray into the Horseman of Salvation, becoming the Horseman of Wellness. Brainwashed by Nate, he attempts to bring about Nate's utopian vision, but is eventually sent alongside the X-Men into the Age of X-Men reality warp. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Omega Red is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. In the pages of Ben Percy's titles Wolverine and X-Force, Omega Red is secretly working as a double agent for Dracula and the Vampire Nation, helping Dracula to secure enough of Wolverine's blood to walk in daylight. Dracula gives Omega Red the carbonadium synthesizer, but rigs it with an explosive to prevent Omega Red from turning on him. When his deception is uncovered by X-Force, Hank McCoy kills and brainwashes Omega Red, turning him into a triple agent. It's a lot going on for a guy who's mostly just that guy with the tentacles, but I'm jazzed to see where it all goes in the upcoming weekly event, Ten Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you all enjoyed that. This was one of the most intense rereads. Not like comprehensive because there isn't that much stuff, but one of the deepest rereads I had to do because I truly had forgotten almost everything about this guy's history. I forgot about the stuff with Banshee. I forgot about (laughs) the serial killing. I mean, I knew he was a serial killer, but like the very visceral stuff with the children I had forgotten about. The only story I really remembered was the Soul Skinner, which was like mostly memorable to me because it's such an Ilyana story, and I was a big Ilyana fan as a kid. 
I had also completely forgotten that he was just dead for a while and Uncanny X-Force had those other Omega people running around. God knows what's happened to them. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll see them eventually. I think they were in Hoxpox at one point, like briefly in like a cameo. Ben, I'd love to jump back into where we were, which I think I was talking about Colossus and about Mikhail and about the Russian. The Russia. Yeah, I'm interested in why that was a point of interest for you. I mean, obviously, if you're writing about a CIA analog, one of the big superpowers you're going to be dealing with is Russia. That makes sense. But I was curious as to why the sort of almost retro Cold War spy thriller stuff here was something that interested you as a as a point of exploration. Sure. I mean, I've, I'm a John Le Carré fan. Mm-hmm. I'm green. Uh, there's definitely an 80s action movie. Yeah, absolutely. Running through X-Force. And when it comes to the rush of it all, they were, we knew from the beginning, a holdout nation. They weren't right. going to treaty. Uh, I'm not interested in making them a one-dimensional antagonist either. Mm-hmm. But I recognize that as a holdout nation, um, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And, and then that, the relationship will change over time. There's a lot of things that are going to happen with Russia. Well, I don't think Mikhail Rasputin is acting at like the direction of Putin, right? Like it, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a bit more nuanced than that. There's going to be a lot of shades of gray. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to shades of green and red uh, in the future. Is that the Krakoan flag green? Have we got the flag yet, finally? Was, yeah. There, we must, because Captain Krakoa is a flag suit, so there must be a flag coming, I imagine. Uh, and, you know, I wanted there to be a traitor. Mm-hmm. So my proposal was Colossus, and I ran with that. You know, you see it from the very first issue. He's been in Russia. He's been getting people out. He's, he's injured. Uh, he's taken into the healing gardens, and, you know, there's something sketchy going on in issue one. Yeah. And the way his eyes snap open with sort of like this dead look on him and how he walks away. And, mm-hmm. and you see seated early on as well these chronicler entries. So satisfying to understand finally what those were. I love a moment when a dad, when suddenly you can go back. Excalibur is also like this with the grimoire and all of the magic that Apocalypse is working up through issue 12. And of course, Hickman loves this. But when you can go back to a data page like eight months later and be like, wow, this makes so much more sense now. I think that's a lot of fun. You know, first it's like, here's a data page that is full of prose. Yeah. What the heck's going on here? Right. What's this novel excerpt suddenly? Some people are irritated. Like, what are the damn prose? As a prose lit agent, obviously, I'm loving it. I'm <laughs> like, marry the form and content. Let's do it. Let's get real weird. And then after a while, there was somebody signing off on them. Mm-hmm. See Chronicler at the bottom. Yes. Uh, and then things started to get weirder and weirder. Like you'd see a passage and then that passage would be crossed out. Mm-hmm. And then it would be written again in a different way. Right. I always... I thought from the very beginning it would be interesting to have a mutant character who's a writer and that that was their power. And this in part comes from, I mean, there's the meta commentary of it all, of course. Of course, yeah. It also reminds me of that X-Files episode, Milagro. The X-Files does, as everyone will agree, including the people on the X-Files, kind of start to fall off around season six-ish. But there's a great season six episode, I think it is, where Scully is being influenced by a writer who can write her into situations. I mean, I'm not saying it's... No, this I'm is a, different. But I'm a Hickman fan, but I actually haven't seen that episode. Oh, you should look it up. It's great. I probably fall off after season four or so. But they, yeah, but I was actually influenced by another similar series. Like uh, I think it was 
either it was Tales from the Crypt or it was Amazing Stories, but there was an episode where there was an artist and whatever he drew becomes real. Become real. And I think he was a monster after his wife or something like that. Writers love a story like that where art affects the world around them because yeah. it's appealing as a writer to sit down and say, well, what if it raises the question of does art change the world? Is art and narrative something that shapes human behavior. And so a character who literally says, my narrative will shape your human behavior because that is what I can do. And I liked the conversation between Mikhail and the Chronicler where the Chronicler stresses, I can only do it if it makes sense in the story. I can't make him do something that isn't narratively satisfying. Now, the Chronicler has his own idea of what the narrative should be, right? So that's subjective. But... It does seem that the power works in such a way that he can only make Colossus do something that Colossus might do on his own. Exactly. And and also has to have sort of a muse, right? Has to mm-hmm. and, and find flow in the same way that like, yes, Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man can shoot webs out of his wrist. But there's that point in the series, right, where he can no longer do it because he's, you know, caught up in his own existential angst. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's not like the Chronicler can just write something and it comes true. There has to be, like, the right flow. There has to be a logic to it. Yeah. He has turned Colossus into a traitor. Perhaps Colossus had doubts about Krakoa that he exploited narratively or whatever. He's turned Colossus into a traitor, and then it is logical that if Kayla finds the evidence, Colossus will move to protect himself. Again, like, because of what I've said about how Colossus, while everybody's saying he's such a nice guy, has in the 21st century and a little bit before that in sort of late stage Excalibur been kind of a controlling boyfriend, a kind of, some would argue, abusive partner in some ways. He got in his relationship with Domino too in that early on, she asked him. That's what I was going to ask. Don't resurrect me without my memories. I want my Are we supposed to take away that he ignored that and told them to do it? Well, no, he, he didn't ignore it. He intentionally... Deleted. He specifically had it deleted. The question that some fans have had is whether Hank did that or whether Piotr did that. And I assume that we're supposed to think that Piotr did it because she he's the one that she asked to make sure and he hasn't commented on it. So clearly he just decided his narrative for her overrode her in the same way that the chronicler is overriding some of his autonomy. There's a you know, yes, it connects to his history with women, but it's also connected to Russia's prerogative in that, you know, they were in Russia on that mission. Right. And Russia has ties to the man with the peacock tattoo and, and Zeno and everything else. And he, he wanted, you know, to, to delete all of that so that Domino wasn't carrying it around. Mm-hmm. It's erasing evidence, yeah. much like with Kayla, but it's also showing that he doesn't respect Yes. The boundaries that she's trying to put in place about herself and her personhood. So I found that very interesting. It did feel to me, I mean, her name is Kayla. It made me think of his relationship with Kate a lot and the way that he reacts to her dating Pete Wisdom, the way that he reacts to a lot of things that are out of his control, the way that he reacts to her breaking their engagement, you know, stuff like that. And I, I mean, I'll say, I hope it's not the end of Kayla's story. No, no, it's Meta narratively, the way that I read it was 
the chronicler fridges the girlfriend because that's what's supposed to happen in this story. But presumably the meta narrative of the story is saying that a superhero story doesn't have to go this way, right? It's aware of what's happening. Right, like the tropes are conscious. It's aware of the trope of the fridge. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I'm interested to see where that goes. I thought she was fun in the little, like, I've got a knife moment that she had. I like when we get these new characters on Krakoa. I mean, as a nerd who loves the 80s material more than anything else, I'm obsessed with every time. I mean, the the mascot of this podcast is Zaladane because the fans were so delighted by my explanation of that during the Polaris episode. I love an obscure pull. But I also like that we're seeing some of these new characters who don't have the baggage, who don't have the history, who can look at someone like Hank and have no attachment to him as a person and just be like, stay away from my house. Like, I don't want you here. You're a bad guy. (laughs) And so I appreciate sort of those windows in. Did the Colossus idea come before I'm going to use Mikhail or was it sort of the other way around? It's all at once. The... You know, there's the Omega Red of it. There's the Mikhail of it. Right, because Omega Red's also Russian, obviously. And, and there's the Chronicler. And it, it's, you know, when it comes to, if I'm going to create a mutant character who is a great writer, like a cataclysmically great writer. Then he's Nabokov or Tolstoy or one of those guys. Exactly. I get it. Yeah. Uh, Vonnegut once said, everything you need to know in life is in the brothers Karmazov. Mm-hmm. Dostoevsky. It's like that tradition. Had to make it a Russian writer. But this guy is reluctant. You know, he doesn't want to be doing what he's doing. Right. He's under duress, which is also interesting. He doesn't have autonomy. In fact, his taking control of Colossus's life is almost a way of seizing control of his own life that he's lost control of. Exactly. He's in a gulag. Yeah. Except it's a dimensional rift. Right. Well, Mikhail loves one of those. And Mikhail is somebody who, if you look at his past, it's very confusing what exactly he can do. And why and what his motivations. He's an enormously confusing character. Powers don't make sense. No, none at all. And his history doesn't make sense because the way Claremont wrote it, he was dead. He was a long dead character. And then in the 90s, they were like, he was never dead. And whenever they do that, it's always... I mean, I have a fantasy about bringing back Corsair's wife, Catherine Anne, and revealing that it was all a ruse. and well, Much like Jerry's doing with Lourdes Chantel. I think there are characters where you can absolutely do that. With Mikhail, I, I think if you want to do that, you have to have a really strong idea for like what the purpose of this character is. What we're gonna, Moira X is the ultimate example, probably, right? Like, oh, she didn't actually die, and she's a much more important character than you ever thought. And here's why. And here's why this character, and here's why it's what I'm doing. With Mikhail, I felt in the 90s, like he was just kind of introduced to be a new bad guy. His plot with the Morlocks and Gene Nation and Callisto and Marrow and all this stuff, none of it really connected to Colossus. Ilyana was already dead. It's just, he's always been a very odd kind of liminal character. And I like the way that this story is keying into the family dynamic in a way that we haven't seen that extensively. Yeah, and it's the puppet mastering of Colossus, It's uh, a secret state existing within the Russian state. Right. He's created his own outcropping. Being a parallel to the Russian nesting dolls. Mm -hmm. It's also just trying, and again, he is central to, just as Omega Red is central to the 10 lives of Wolverine and the ex-deaths of Wolverine. Um, And I am trying to sort of put a finger on what exactly he can do. Mm Mm-hmm. And you'll see that carry over into Destiny of X as well. 
as I continue to sort of dig into Kid Omega, who has something big on the horizon uh, that's going to happen to him. And so far, Kid Omega, despite the fact that he considers himself the Omega of all Omegas, and it's actually hinted at that his powers are supreme. Ostensibly limitless, right. Basically, Jean Grey light. So what exactly can Kid Omega do that's different? And the same thing with Mikkel. I think that there's something, there might be something similar that they are tapped into. Well, that's interesting. The thing that's confusing about Quentin and Jean is that, and this is just because being Omega level is Quentin's whole thing, so you can't quite take it away when you're paring down the list, I assume. But if you look at the list that Hickman put together of like, here are the Omega level mutants, we're going to be consistent, here's who they are, because it had been so inconsistent over the years, they all have a different power except for Quentin and Gene. Now, there are the reality warpers, but I, I liked in that chart how it's stressed that they have different kinds of reality warping. Jamie Braddock manipulates quantum physics. You know, there's different stuff going on with each of them. Proteus's reality warp is a psychic reality warp that's, you know, psychosomatic. They do different things. But with Quentin and Gene, it's very unclear as to what it means to have two Omega-level telepaths. Yeah. How can they both have no measurable upper limit if they both exist? Because like Manifold says in S.W.O.R.D., I'm not an Omega-level mutant, but look what I can do. So imagine what the Omega-level mutant with my power could do. I'm interested to see, I, you know, again, that's an avenue for story. Like, what does it mean? How did we assess this? And what do they do that's different? The way I have seen it is that Quentin Quire is a character who is all about wasted potential. You know, almost everything's handed to you. It's like, you're a pretty well-to-do white kid who is Xavier's favorite student, who has the genetic lottery of your power is limitless, and who goes in the Morrison's, this is the Morrison story I'm talking about, goes in the absolute wrong direction because of that entitlement, because of that belief that he is superior. That arrogance, I think, has prevented him from achieving the higher levels of his power in a way that Gene, by accepting the Phoenix in the Morrison run, I mean, Phoenix Resurrection makes it confusing, but I'm hoping that we'll see what happens next. But accepting that she is the Phoenix, accepting that her power is limitless and that she therefore has responsibilities to other people and to the universe, I think that is what has allowed her to achieve her highest potential. So I don't know. I'm interested to see where it goes. I'm very, I'm very famously on this podcast skeptical of Quentin Quire, but I trust that you have a plan. That's the thing that's been satisfying about this book is that, like you said, the plots will kind of, it's almost like a lazy Susan where like, here's the plot again, it's back. And this is, again, an advantage of having so much runway that has been guaranteed to you. And I'm grateful that in this era, a lot of these books have been given that lead time to plan. And I hope that that continues. You can tell that all of these plots are going to bear fruit, that all of these characters are going somewhere. And I'm just very excited to see where that ends up being. We haven't even talked about Black Tom Cassidy, a character you've really brought back in a big way. He's probably bigger than yeah, ever yeah, before. Black is a, is a favorite. And, and he was another character where I, I, you know, I, I was looking at him and thinking, there's not a lot going on there. I think there is, but until such time as he and Juggernaut are <laughs> official on the page, I, well, I think it's hard to dig into it. On. Now there's a lot going on. I just there. think there's always been a lot going down there. If you go back to the 90s, I mean, yeah. there, or even the 70s, frankly, I think Claremont wrote them as a couple. I think there's a lot of interesting sublimated stuff going on in Black Tom Cassidy's Catholic nobleman mind that are complicated. But well, there's, a, there's a juggernaut 
Black Tom spotlight issue that's going to be coming up. I'm very excited about that. I've liked all of the very cute windows into their relationship that we've gotten glimpses when he was yeah. dreaming about Kane or like the I'll fucking kill that guy who said that about you who called you Dracula. <laughs> the Dracula thing. Yeah. I'm sure I haven't listened to the Battle of the Atom episode yet, but I was talking to Zach Jenkins and he was like, oh, we talked about the Dracula thing. Don't worry. We talked about the because that was so funny. I, I almost fell out of my chair. Yeah. The, I mean, from the very beginning, when we were doing promo materials for X. Right. And, and was it CBR was like, is that Dracula? And Jordan White was like, no, that's Black Tom Cassidy. <laughs> but it's funny. It's so funny. I, I ran with it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's great. And just the idea of, of Black Tom, if he's going to be plugged into the island, he's going to be experiencing something similar to Sage, who is just, you know, overrun with calculation. Too much information. Yeah. Too much information. And he is hybridized in a way. He's become a symbiotic organism. And that's one of the reasons I decided that he would refer to himself in know, plural. In as in plural or in third person, because there's a sort of severance or confusion over who he is anymore. I mean, and that led into the very logical twist that still surprised me of because the island has been slowly infected with techno-organic virus that now he appears to be infected himself, which is an interesting... Black Tom's power as an infection is something that's gone back to the 90s when the plant stuff really started to kick into gear. His whole arc with Siren is about how his power has gone out of control and he's kind of losing his mind about it. So I'm interested to see where that goes. I think that his relationship with Kane has often been about Kane acting as a caretaker for him when his power makes him psychopathic or makes him physically weak or, you know, he's often the one who, because Kane's power is to be indestructible and strong, right? So. Can't stop the juggernaut. Can't stop him. What can you tell us about 10 Lives and Excess of Wolverine that you haven't talked about already that isn't too spoilery? Obviously, it's a time travel story spinning out of Inferno. It's two parallel minis, the 10 Lives and the X deaths. I love that use of X is presumably a variable, right? Like how many? We don't know. Well, it also refers to the X gene. Oh, interesting. I mean, it refers to, that's what's fun about the play that's been done with X and 10 and everything in this era is that as a symbol, it can mean so many things and it means so many different things when it's on a character's costume. And now it can mean so many different things in a title as well. What can you tell us about it? You've said, perhaps this is arrogant, or, you know, but you are doing hopefully the biggest Wolverine story ever told. And a lot of Wolverine stories have been told. So how did you approach that? How did you set about deciding yeah. what you were going to do? I mean, the key phrase to lean into here is the greatest Wolverine story of all time, right? And when I say it like that, maybe you... X and 10, right? All time means a lot of things. Exactly. And I'm tipping my hat and not insulting previous creators. Right. Uh, I'm trying to channel legacy here uh, in that here are stories about Team X. Here are stories about Weapon X. Here are stories about Japan. Here are stories about Canada. Uh, here are, you know, the greatest Wolverine stories never told as well, filling in some of the gaps or, or building upon knowledge that you already had. I would love to see more. We, I mentioned her earlier, but I would love to see more about Silver Fox because talk about a confusing character when she came back in the 90s. That was about as confusing as it gets. I keep wondering, I'm like, is she on Krakoa? That's got to be weird. <laughs> there's, there's so many characters. Where I'm like, are they there? Are they back? Yeah. And it's five issues. 
for each one, there's five issues of 10 lives, there's five issues of X deaths, and, and that's not nearly enough to cover all the territory. Sure, no, especially if you add all the origin stuff into it. I'm sure there'll be some nerds who are like, well, I really wish they had covered. I wanted more of Romulus and Remus. Don't worry, I don't think anybody says that. But know that this isn't the end, right? No, it's going to keep going, right? It's not It's not the end I'm of the character. Riding through the spring, and I'm going to be building towards an event that's even bigger than this one. That's exciting. And it might have something to do with a certain someone who's been off stage for a while. Mm. Anyways. I'm a big Victor Laval fan, so I'm excited to see Victor him. and I go way back. He's a fantastic writer. I know him through my day job. He's just like a lovely person. Yeah. And we're working in tandem. We're we're in contact. We're building a story that is aligned. And and anyways, I mean, it's hard for me to talk about even one of the central characters. Well, right, because they haven't revealed who he's trying to save yet. Like it's it's hard. I can't say it because I can't say what happens in Inferno. Right, that's the issue. So you know, it's like, is it Moira? Is it Dusty? Who is it? Like we're gonna get that, I imagine, tomorrow as you're listening to this in uh, <laughs> Inferno Four. So from a meta perspective, was time travel something you wanted to explore because it enabled you to check into all of these different, to check in with Patch, to check in with Team X, to check in with all of that stuff? And if you just think about Wolverine's brain, right, and the way that it's broken from the very Mm -hmm. beginning, I've emphasized this, it was in my initial pitch that I was going to write this story. I love that. And Lives of Wolverine, the ex-deaths of Wolverine is in my initial Bible. That's very cool. It's so cool that you get to do that. How many gigs in Big Two Comics do you get to say, and here's the big event I'd like to do two years in. Exactly. And then you get to do it. That's wild. <laughs> I mean, sometimes sometimes things don't work out, right? Of like, course. I had a big plan for Nightwing as well, and then Nightwing got shot in the hole. <laughs> yeah, and, and these I things quit. happen. But anyways, with, with this, like, look at the very first page of Wolverine that I wrote. Look at the first page of issue one. And I'm not, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm just the best I can from memory, but it it's something along the lines of Jimmy, Logan, Patch, Weapon X, Wolverine, Canada, New York, Madripoor, Krakoa. It talks about how his brain is bruised black. It talks about how everything's a, a, a mixed up mosaic. Uh, and how he's trying to make sense of it all as he moves his history as he moves towards an uncertain future. Mm-hmm. And in a way, this story is a response to that opening thesis. Yeah. And the character of Maverick, who's been seeded throughout the Wolverine run, feels also like, I mean, obviously another mirror, someone from Team X who also has all of their memories jumbled up and this, that, and everything. Although Wolverine, I guess now has his memories in order or whatever. I, I, I'd say solo Wolverine has never been my, I kind of, my special wheelhouse. I think that, yeah, it's best to just be like, let's right. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's more interesting if he's a little confused, right? Maverick certainly is very confused, but I have been saying from the beginning of the era, going back to the question of diaspora and minority, one parallel point with Israel to go to that nation state analog is you know, I'm Jewish, but I have no interest in emigrating to Israel. That's not my politic. But with Krakoa, if I was a mutant, I think I would. It's, it, there are unique situations. But I, I have said that there need to be diaspora mutants who don't buy it. I liked the introduction of Maverick as that character. Again, I really like the twist that Abigail Brand, which 
if you think about Abigail Brand for 10 seconds, of course, she basically told them like 10 times on page. But the idea that you can be a mutant without feeling like a mutant nation is something you have any interest in belonging to, that you're American or you're from space, in Brand's case, you're someone who has other identities that you value more highly. And his name's Maverick. Yeah, I mean, that is the, that is the gist, right? He's like, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm my own man. Yeah, and I assume that he's going to factor in as well to to this event because he's part of Logan's past so intimately. Maverick's central to the Wolverine run in general. And that's a character that I think a lot of people are not familiar with. Modern readers, I mean, because he had like a big push in the 90s and then kind of, much like Omega Red, honestly, a lot of those ancillary Wolverine characters they were often tied up with Wolverine or Cable. It was like, which solo 90s book are you popping up in? And a lot of them kind of fall off. But I, I think that that was an interesting pull. What was it that appealed to you about their relationship versus the other relationships Wolverine has with like old allies? Well, they have gone completely different routes. You know, Maverick, despite the fact that they are both people who don't like to help other people, Wolverine is constantly drawn into teams. Yes, uh, they're both loners, though. And Maverick is out for himself. So Wolverine might grumble as he's brought on to X-Force or as he's brought on to X-Men or whatever, or even the Avengers. But there he is, once again, at the center of it all, hacking and slashing away. Well, I have loved the seething homoerotic tension between them throughout the Yeah, episode. there's a bro, there's a bro, <laughs> bro tension. There. But Maverick is about himself, and Maverick is about money. I mean, it's all about the bottom line for him. So he will betray Wolverine, but in a friendly sort of way. Like, you you know, like, you know buddy, come on, you, got, come you know on. what I stand for. And that's what I liked about the convo between Brand and Gyrick also. is like this idea of like, I've never lied about who I am. So if you're surprised by this, that's kind of your fault. Yeah. And Sabretooth is like that too. I mean, Sabretooth is like, yeah, throw me in the hole. I'm not going to play ball. I don't do that. That's not who I am. Yeah. So Maverick knows who he is, and Wolverine knows who Maverick is, and Wolverine will never hate him as a result, no matter if Maverick betrays him, which he will over and over again. And sometimes they'll be aligned as well. Sometimes they'll be right. advocating for one another, if it's in Maverick's best interest. Exactly, exactly. And in that way, he is very similar to a lot of the human characters who have come in and out of the X-Men's world, like Valerie Cooper, like Gyrick, these people who sometimes are with you sometimes are your friend, but it's always in the service of their broader goal. And it's nice to see mutant characters who have rejected the solidarity concept of Krakoa and are still like, no, it's really about me at the end of the day. I'll take advantage. I'll come sing karaoke at your house. I'll drink the free tiki bar. Also plan a surveillance device. Yeah, also- don't for any, don't for a minute think that I'm not gonna turn on you any second. It's an interest, it's interesting because it contrasts a character like Mystique, who is sociopathically self-driven most of the time, like completely about herself and the people who she views as extensions of herself, whether they be her children or her wife, right? So there's that, but also she does work for the good of Krakoa, for the good of the nation, even as she undermines it from within for her own purposes. Maverick is fully just outside it. He doesn't care. Yeah. I thought it would be interesting to have him head a group of mercs, you know, a group of mercenaries. They're called the mercs, who were sort of displaced because of Krakoa. All of these operatives who he's hired on to his organization found themselves sitting on their hands because 
of the Krakowin Treaty. It's not as though world peace occurred, far from it. But when the treaty was signed, a lot of conflict in the world suddenly evaporated. And there are a lot of these black op guys who are like, you know, I need a job. Right. And so Maverick's like, come work for me. And, uh, you know, he's got a bunch of sort of like lone wolves who are part of the same pack. Yeah, I like that. I like it's kind of, again, a dark mirror because that is so much of the X-Men, right? Is like found family, outcasts, misfits, people who have been in some way deprived banding together to form a family of friends and loved ones that give them power and give them support and all of that. It's always fun to see villain groups that parallel that. Like, you're missing something. You don't have the life you want. Come join us. And that's why when Maverick calls Krakoa a cult, as some fans who don't like Krakoa have done, right? And and certainly there are elements of it that are unsavory. I mean, I am a generally pro-Krakoa kind of person, but what I like about Krakoa is the way that it is unflinchingly looking at patriotism and at nationhood and at these concepts as something that does breed a cult mentality at times, that does create an idea of, oh, the greater good of the nation is bigger than any one individual, things like that that can be very unjust. So I'm just very excited to see what obviously is going to be a very climactic story for yeah. all of the stuff you've been, all the pieces you've been putting in place. Hoping people feel satisfied by it because there's a, you know, there there is a larger there is a larger story that that binds it all together that I hope to satisfy every dangling plot thread. And, um, you know, it would be a great time to write the X-Men at any point in my career, but I feel especially lucky to be doing that right now. I think there is no more potentially formative time to be writing the X-Men in the 21st century than right now. I mean, all the work you guys are doing in that office is stuff that decades from now people will be still picking apart, will still be building on in new stories. Feels meaningful. Yeah, I think it is. I really think it is. I mean, I've said, I think the three primary architects of the X-Men, when we look back, will be Chris Claremont, and that includes Anna Senti and Louise Simonson's contributions. They didn't write as much of it as he did, but I do think that it was the three of them working very closely as a unit. But the Claremont era, and then Grant Morrison, who just shook the table completely with their run. And then this era, I mean, initially I said, and Jonathan Hickman, but I think that Hickman's vision is more about creating a team, creating a circuit, as it were. And I think that this mutant circuit is going to be the third point. Because there have been so many great writers, it's not to insult anybody, but you look at someone like Mike Carey, who I think is one of the greatest comics writers out there, and the fact, the editorial fact of the decimation put so many limitations on the story that he was able to tell. And it feels like the sky is the limit with this stuff. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Keep, keep following along and enjoying the ride. And the thing about this circuit that Hickman did create is that, you know, he wanted there to be series for everybody. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read it all. You know, if you want something that's more whimsical and romantic and adventurous, you can go to Excalibur. If you want something that's, you know, poison, you can read X-Force, <laughs> you know. I've said that 
I can't believe I'm buying both Solo, Wolverine, and X-Force every month. That's not something I've ever in my life done because those books are not for me. They've never been for me. And I think that the most fascinating thing that this line is doing right now is it does feel like there's an X book for everyone. Like Excalibur, as you know, I mean, I started working with Teeny because I read the first few issues of that and I reached out to her like, hey, do you have any pros? Because I'm a huge Betsy Braddock fan. I was not a huge Ninja Psylocke fan. I mean, I, she's cool. I love Kanan. I, I'm thrilled with where Psylocke is now. But reading a Betsy story that felt to me like my Betsy and like a new era for that character who's now going to come into her own as herself rather than as this archetype that was placed on her by writers, not to get chronicler about it, but they really <laughs> turned her into a different person. I think letting that person be a real character and letting Betsy Braddock be Betsy Braddock is incredible. And so I was reading that because I love fantasy. I love that kind of whimsical stuff. The Claremont and Davis Excalibur was my real favorite when I was a kid. So there's that. And I also like Hellions was one of my absolute favorite Marvel comics in like 20 years. I mean, I think that book is just about flawless. Those are books I knew I would like. But then I pick up something like X-Force and I'm like, this kind of gritty black ops book is never really my thing. But everything feels so collaborative and holistic that I am having so much fun watching them all feed into each other. And we're all in Slack every day. We have a meeting every two weeks uh, over Zoom that can last three hours. I am so excited. My other client in that Slack, Steve Orlando, I'm just so excited to see what he is about to do with the Marauders yeah. because that is right in his wheelhouse. Yeah. And Eleanor Carlini is so great. I'm not into cartoonier styles usually. That's just like not my aesthetic, but there's something about her figures that and her facial expressions that are just so funny. So I'm very excited about that. She's a great addition to the team. Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm jazzed. I think now is probably a good time for us to move into the listener questions. We have a couple rapid fire ones about Omega Red, but then they're just going to generally be more about your work in the X office. Sure. Daniel Brittner writes, simple question, where do Omega Red's tentacles get stored when retracted? Are they collapsible like a plastic lightsaber? What do you think? Where are the tentacles? Where do they go? Where do Beast Boy's clothes go when he turns into an animal? Great question. Where do all of Husk's outfits go? Because they just come back when she rips another layer off. I think that much like Wolverine, it doesn't make any sense, but you have to assume that they just retract into his wrist somehow. They must be collapsible Lapsed, like a baton right? like that. Yeah. As it goes on. And they're like bony and hard. Like I, I'm honestly this, I'm just thinking about the Capcom fighting game, but like they make, you know, hard noises when he slaps people with them. So I think they are like bone-like like and and that they must much like a russian nesting doll actually like matryoshka up into a smaller unit patrick talbot writes hello connor and esteem mr percy where is kotick omega red's beloved baby tiger he adopted with saber tooth i had forgotten about that until i was glancing over stuff for this episode that was in weapon x force if you don't remember it he adopted a tiger everybody has their favorite storylines everybody has their favorite mutants and sometimes people even have their favorite sometimes mutant. People Pets. love a pet, yeah. But, you know, sometimes you just can't fit it all in. I'd like to think that he is in the ex-pet biome along with the secretly resurrected butter rum that Emma has been hiding. Or Rufus as well. Rufus is roaming around the dog. Who sure, was, yeah. we got to find a way. Uh, and, and Solemn was hanging out with Rufus. Um, <laughs> that's, that's probably where. That's probably yeah, where. yeah. I do think that at some point, 
if they need leverage over the Avengers. Emma should just be like, well, Firestar, have I got news for you? We have a bestiary. We've got your horse on file. Now we're going to get into sort of more general questions. Cesar Castanha writes, hello, Connor and Benjamin. As everyone else, I just wanted to say how important, delightful, and fun this podcast has been for me. A truly great companion to the wonderful X-Comics we're getting these last few years. I'm having a blast with the Discord channel as well. Such good vibes always. Well, thank you. I should say I'm still late with the podcast. I want to catch up so bad. I started listening with a seven-month gap, and I'm in a five-month gap, so I'll get there. Listen, these episodes are long, and the fact that you are bothering to catch up with the backlog is enormously flattering, so thank you. My question is regarding Mr. Percy's X-Force. I've talked on the Discord before about how I was bothered by the data page of Hoxpox with the countries that didn't recognize Krakoan sovereignty because it felt like the usual list of U.S. perception of intolerant regimes, choosing to ignore a bunch of other intolerant regimes. I was also under the initial perception that as Krakoa was a rival with these countries, a lot of them Latin American, although a lot of them also fictional, we were about to witness the usual storylines of military undercover ops coordinated by English-speaking people who go into these countries to quote-unquote liberate them from their corrupt governments. A recurring storyline that I have found offensive because U.S. military action here in Latin America has happened frequently before. But to my great surprise, Percy's X-Force has done the opposite of that typical storyline. Acknowledging the relationships between nations states with extremely different economic, military, and political power can hardly be this well-meaning. I'm, of course, referring to the great Terra Verde storyline. The thing is that both Krakoa and Terra Verde are fictional countries, and the story itself is a lot of science fiction. The setting in Latin America, and the fact that most of the X-Men are from the U.S., accommodates a reading to me that lurks on some real-life politics. My question, finally, I'm so sorry, is how do you, Ben, deal with the more realistic historical and urgent implications that seem inevitable when writing comics set in another version of our very real world, and that are also contemporary with the times? Do you make it as fictional as possible with places, characters, and historical events, or do you take a more direct inspiration from real-world issues and try to deal with that responsibly through your own perspective. I think the experts' take on that has been very, very good, but I was interested in both your considerations on that matter. I assume the tension between comics fiction and real-life politics might already be a theme in the Omega Red episode. Thank you so very much for your great work, Cesar Castanha. I thought that was a really interesting question, and I wanted to pose it to you. Yeah, yeah, that's a really thoughtful question, um, and thank you. Uh, the, you know, I'm very much aware of the, you know, imperialistic colonial implications of the U.S. global force and in writing a story about a mutant version of the CIA, I wanted to tap into that. Uh, and Latin America is, of course, a place where American manipulation has been... Constant. Supreme and constant. So as is often the case, I feel like it's sometimes more accessible, more digestible for an audience to encounter real world issues through a cracked mirror version of reality. You know, if you look at Star Trek, it's one thing if you go to the editorial page of a newspaper and read about an issue, you are typically turned on or off, depending upon the leanings of the author. Uh, I think that there's something a little bit more powerful about reading a story. It could be short fiction, could be a comic, could be a screenplay, whatever. You, you encounter a story. And instead of ripping something from the headlines, Instead, it's doing what Emily Dickinson demanded, and that is to tell it slant. Mm -hmm. So 
The stories in X-Force by and large have been telling it slant in that I'm trying to write about, you know, about hot button issues, about frayed nerve realities, but through uh, a reality other than ours, which makes it a little bit more digestible. Yes, but also just you have the power to sweep your audience away to care about characters, to care about a story, to, you know, stories are empathy machines. And, and so somebody might be not just entertained, but, but educated or even incited to change, mm-hmm. uh, which is not to like overblow my role as an author or anything. I'm speaking generally here about, you know, the power of story. So, and, that, and my intent when writing some of these things. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the time, particularly in superhero comics, it can come across glib when, I mean, this is the question about Russia, right? Like, what are we doing with Russia in this comic? Is you want to be careful not to flatten a real world state or a real world conflict. Therefore, I think superhero comics have often benefited from fictional cities like Gotham and Metropolis or from fictional countries like Terra Verde. There are, of course, things about that that are going to be complicated. A lot of Asian readers have commented on the fact that Madripoor, as imagined in the 80s, is very much a melange of Orientalist stereotypes and tropes. But that enables Claremont and the writers who come after to tell stories in that Hong Kong cinema tradition without saying, this is how we feel about Hong Kong or about Singapore. And I think that Terra Verde, similarly, the way I read it, stands in for a lot of Latin American countries that the CIA has done heinous things in without saying, okay, we're going to have experts obliterate Honduras. I mean, when Civil War happened, Stanford, Connecticut is like 20 minutes that way from where I'm sitting. It was odd that it was like we're blowing up Stanford. I'm not saying a bad choice necessarily. It was just one of those things where I was like, but it's right there. It's still there. It pulled me out of the story a little bit. So Terra Verde as a place that it is a pre-existing Marvel fictional country. It's not new to X-Force, but I thought that that made sense much like a lot of DC stories will take place in Kurok rather than Iraq. You know, it makes it so that you can tell a story about American intervention without necessarily casting aspersions on a lot of real people in another part of the world. Agreed. Well said. Dean Coburn writes, hello, Connor and esteemed Mr. Percy. Firstly, just let me say like everyone else, this podcast has been a real love of mine ever since I discovered it after the Gene episode. Well, thank you. Secondly, to Benjamin Percy, your series are so good to the point of actually making me excited about a Wolverine solo. (laughs) My question is about Solemn and Logan's dynamic over the course of Ten of Swords and up to now. As far as the creation of Solemn goes, what came first? Was it the powers, the backstory, the psychosexual hedonist elements, the very sexy look? As always, thank you for an amazing podcast and incredible comics that have reinvigorated my love of the medium, Dean, Dean underscore of underscore X on Twitter. Oh, shucks. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, you know, I've referred to Solomon before as the Loki to Wolverine store. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't just want to rely upon what's been done in the past. Yes, there'll be a Sabretooth story. Sure, there'll be an Omega Red story. But, you know, I want to build my own toys in the sandbox too absolutely and 
And I like the idea of a character who has similarities to Wolverine, as I've said before, you know, traumatized background, being employed by a more powerful figure, this being Sever Blackmore, the Iraqi pirate, um, and who has a similar power set as well. He has adamantium skin instead of adamantium bones. Yeah. I like him much more than Cyber, the previous adamantium skin character who I just never thought really quite hit. Yeah. No offense to any Cyber fans in the audience who I'm sure exist. Some people just unsubscribe to this podcast. Listen, I love Carmelo Unashone. I think she's had like one line ever. So I get it. There are some obscure villains where you're like, that one's cool. I like him. So no disrespect to the Cyber fans. But I like the parallel of if Wolverine has adamantium claws that can penetrate anything what is the thing it can't penetrate, adamantium skin. And of course, the fun factor here is the added element of Solemn really wanting Wolverine to penetrate him in other ways. I thought it would be such an interesting dynamic to have them together, working together, fighting. The character of Solemn could win any fight he's in, but he doesn't want to fight. He always ducks out of every fight. Right. He's a guy who just wants to fuck. Like he's yeah. <laughs> relatable, honestly. <laughs> he's driven by pleasure. He want if there's a casino, if there's a dance club, if there's some sort of hedonistic orgy pad, he's there. I mean, I'm a Pisces, so I relate to this. I just want to be comfortable. Too sensitive for all this fighting. It's Aries Pisces. There uh, you go. It's that March Wolverine solemn. Yeah. Ooh, Wolverine is very Aries. I hadn't thought about that. The one that always gets me is that Jean Grey is canonically a Pisces, which feels super, super wrong to me. But, you know, we don't have to get into the Zodiac of it all because it's not real. I just enjoy it as a private language that only women and gay men and apparently Ben Percy can speak, which I find really... <laughs> I, I was just ru running with the, the Pisces thing, but <laughs> I myself, I know I'm, I'm an Aries. I'm March 20th. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, a lot of artists are in the coincidences where you go, maybe this is real. Like sometimes you start to see patterns. Solemn, I noted in the Prodigy episode, because he came up randomly, to me feels a little bit like, you know, a lot of Wolverine's rivals because of the fact that he is such a hyper-masculine character with that sort of Bushido or ancient Greek Spartan kind of mentality to his stories, there is a homoeroticism always to those relationships. I think that Solemn making it very literal is interesting, especially because I said the joke I made was like, he's like a version of Dakin that Wolverine could fuck and it wouldn't be weird. <laughs> He's not a relative, so it's fine. There is that question of like, I'm trying to tempt Wolverine into a different kind of scenario as opposed to Sabretooth being like, come be a killer like me. Right. Appealing to something else about Wolverine that maybe he keeps sublimated or keeps under his coat. One Solemn to be somebody who Wolverine never, never can hate. He's too fun. Solemn might totally fuck him over. Wolverine's just going to be like, this fucking guy. That actually makes me think about a character we haven't seen as far as I can remember in the Krakoa era, which is Lady Deathstrike. I'd be interested to see. Stay tuned. Just because I've been thinking about how she would be a very interesting character to throw in with Orcus. Keep it on the horizon. I am keeping my eyes open. She definitely feels like someone where she's been kept in reserve and we're going to get a, a yeah. Deathstrike story. 
Similarly, I would love to see more. We got that that glimpse during Ten of Swords, but particularly after the alternate universe work that Peach Momoko just did, I would really love to see more of Mariko Yoshida and the Scarlet Samurai stuff that's developed with her. I think that would be super cool. There's just so many Wolverine characters. Like, where's Tiger Tiger at? I'd just love to see all of these old friends pop up. I care more about the women, obviously, because that's just who I am. I was just rereading some Larry Hama, Silvestri stuff with Tiger Tiger. She's so fun. She's just a really fun character. I love all of that. Like, the 90s stuff is very oppressively 90s for me, which is just, like, not my vibe. It's, like, very boy books in a way that I never have quite been able to relate to. But Larry Hama has such a particular sensibility about Solo Wolverine that makes it It's always fun. I also think it is a great relief at that point to have an Asian writer writing the Madripoor stuff. It suddenly feels a lot less tropey and a lot more real. It's less Terry and the Pirates. Terry and the Pirates is great, but there's an obvious problem with Terry and the Pirates, and it's that. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to see where all these characters go, and I think Solemn as a new Wolverine villain is very appealing as a new kind of mirror, and I've really enjoyed him. Yeah, I'm I'm glad people have been connecting with him. Kate Crowley writes, hello, Mr. Esteemed Percy. They always say esteemed guests, so clearly they're all having fun with this. Hello, Mr. Esteemed Percy and host. Ah, rude. Kate and I are friends. Connor, this question isn't for you. I kid, with love. Mr. Percy, for the love of the Cerebro fan Discord server, can you talk for a few minutes about Sage? So few details exist about this character's past, including where she comes from and her original name. I would love to hear what made you want to include her on your run of X-Force and any other thoughts you might have on our blessed lady of the internet. Thanks so much, Kate. Well, we've covered this to some We've covered it a little bit, yeah. If I'm going to have an intelligence unit, it makes perfect sense to have Sage, you know, as one of the main characters. Don't get much more intelligent than that, right? And she's the original spy of the actual... She's the analyst, and she's a spy. Yeah. And I wanted her to transform over time, like all the characters that I'm writing, from somebody who is just sort of plugged in and purposeful to somebody who is getting a little restless. Uh, not just with some of the moral decisions being made, but also with uh, being trapped in this cave with stinky old beast all day. Yeah. Are you planning to dig into her history at all? It is very mysterious, her past before meeting. Uh, a little bit, but I'm you know focused on the future more than the past. Yeah, no, of course, of course. I just love her. I think she's a very underrated character. I think that she's from a period of the comics She's so closely associated with Claremont and his return to the X-Men that I think a lot of people have been hesitant to write her because it's like I asked Grant Morrison years and years and years ago, this was during Final Crisis, like Renee Montoya is my favorite DC character. And I was like, you know, do you have any plans for Renee Montoya? I liked how you wrote her in Final Crisis. Oh, that's really Greg's character, isn't she? And they said like, they would try to throw her into something, but that a lot of people were a little nervous about touching that character because she was so much Greg's character. Um, and I think Sage has fallen into that. Jordan White mentioned when he was on the show that he has an affection for Sage because one of the first books he edited was Claremont's New Exiles. So he wanted her really to be on a team somewhere, and he was glad that you picked her up for X-Force. Yeah, yeah I mean, I just think she's getting even in, as you note, like a more supporting role because the book has mostly been about Hank and Logan and a little bit about Quentin for that arc that happened. Well, Domino, trying to do his folk, you know, turnstile thing. What else? Domino, Domino, right away. And Quentin and there's every character will get their moment in the spotlight. Right, and, and Sage hasn't quite had her spotlight yet, but I'm intrigued by what we've seen so far and I'm very excited to see where that goes. I think she is a character with such a rich much like Wolverine history in the X-Men 
universe, so much of which in her case has never been depicted. Yep. To build toward the future, you look to the past. That's what 10 Lives seems to be about, right? Okay. I'm excited about that. Peyton Whaley writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest, long time, first time, et cetera, et cetera. I'm looking forward to this episode for two big reasons. One, I know you'll make me care about a character I know next to nothing about. Oh, I don't know if I will, but I hope you've enjoyed regardless. <laughs> so bigger Ed, he really is what you see is what you get. Like, do you think those tentacles are cool? You're in. Otherwise, there's just, he's, he is... He is more interesting, I think, in terms of what he says about Wolverine than he is as a character unto himself. But the dynamic between them is very interesting, and I'm interested to see how it continues to play out. Second, this means the listeners will get a minimum of two hours of listening to Mr. Percy's voice. There's no way that doesn't sound creepy, but we're all thinking it. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Percy, through your experts run, you've written many a despicable character. It's Beast. I'm talking about Beast. How do you go about treating <laughs> characters who are truly horrible people in a way that both keeps you entertained as a writer and doesn't resort to a more straightforward redemption arc? Speaking of, do you think there's any redemption for Mr. McCoy to be had? He's put his team through the ringer lately, but rereading Hickman's New Avengers reminded me that he's been off the deep end for quite some time now. Connor, I adore the show. Thank you for getting us through this never-ending plague and for showing us all that the Venn diagram of ex-Twitter and Real Housewives Twitter is actually a circle. You've got something really special here, so thank you. Make mine cerebro. Peyton Whaley, he, him. Well, thank you, Peyton. That's very sweet. I think, and I've said this before, I think Hank has been off the deep end since he gave Threnity to Sinister, and that was back in the 90s. So yeah, he's, got a, he's got a history of being sketchy. Yeah, I mean, if he's like, for the greater good, I will give this girl to Mr. Sinister and see what he can do. Like, he is that kind of person. What do you think about that? How do you go about writing characters who are morally pretty despicable without it being flat? And what do you think about Hank? Is he irredeemable? How do you see the character? Well, is Apocalypse Irredeemable? Well, that's the question. Like, there's a lot of bad people on the island right now. And what I said before about Beast uh, is that he has a code, the utilitarian code, greatest good for the greatest number of mutants. So uh, is he uh, self-absorbed, self-righteous? Uh, absolutely. Is, is he making decisions that can't be forgiven? Yes. Does that mean he won't also do some things that are admirable. Like he's, he's going to, he's going to make some calls and do some things that are worthy of applause. Uh, he's also going to do some things that are just sickening. Heinous, right. That's the way it's going to roll. And I can't say anything about what Specifics, right. But I said there would be a point of reckoning. That's very true to how the engine of power and state power works. Is any political leader, anyone who's led a nation or is particularly a nation's security apparatus, is going to have done some terrible things. And the question becomes, on balance, how do you feel about such and such president? What does that mean about their legacy? What does that mean about who they are as a person? I think that those are interesting questions to ask. And I think Hank, because of the long history he has of making these immoral or amoral choices in the service of what he believes to be the greater good is a character who it makes a lot of sense to explore that through. My interest is less in redemption as a narrative framework. I've said this also before on the pod, but like, so Ben, just for some backstory, I am from an interfaith background. I was not raised religiously Jewish, but as an adult, I have pursued it. I did my bar mitzvah in quarantine at age 33, which was a lot of work. And uh, so I've been thinking a lot about Jewish philosophy over the last year. And for me, the question of redemption in sort of a Christ-like way, like, can you be absolved? is not the question with a character like Hank. The question is a question of atonement. Can you make amends for doing bad things? Because you can't unring the bell. Yeah. If you can't be forgiven, 
for things that you've done, then can you be of service? Like, is there some apocalypse, Celine, these characters who have lived for centuries and killed millions and millions of people over the years, can they be of service? Can they be productive members of society? Can they be rehabilitated? Is there a non-carceral approach to supervillains? I mean, there is a lot of interesting stuff there to dig into. And under the auspices of a superhero comic, there's only so far you can dig deep into some of these existential questions because there have to be pew-pew explosions. There has to be a plot. It can't just be you know, Frost Nixon with Beast. But what's more interesting to me than can Hank be redeemed is if we accept that Hank is a bad person, are there things about Hank that are valuable? Are there things about Hank that are worthwhile? And can Hank be taken to a place where his function in society is now one where he's not doing harm or where his harm has been mitigated? Right. That's what I'm interested to see. Well, and you'll, you'll witness that. Ben has a hard stop, so I'm sorry if we don't get to your questions. Some quick ones now that are a little bit more lighthearted. Luke Ruddick writes, Hello, Cerebro and esteemed guest. First off, I'd like to thank Mr. Percy for the current run of Wolverine, which I found myself genuinely loving, despite Wolverine never quite being my thing. It's strange and a bit alarming, but I'm a Wolverine fan now. My question is for him. Between an appreciation for flannel, the great outdoors, and good liquor, it sometimes feels like you might be the most Logan-esque writer to ever write Logan. So are there any other characters you feel that sense of symmetry with, and would you like to write them too? I mean, Wolverine's my favorite. It's hard to know where to go from here. Um, this might, whenever I conclude my run, which might be two or three years from now, um, that might be it for me. I don't know. I might walk away from comics, big two anyway, and just do stuff of, you know, my own creation. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in Hulk. I'm interested in uh, a John Le Carre version of Captain America. Mm. I'm interested in Batman. I mean, I'd love to read you on Batman. That would be... Batman's really the only thing that can compare to Wolverine for me. Well, it's a very similar kind of like, who is this super broken guy? What's his deal? Like, yeah. what is this all about? You know? It's, it's my hope <laughs> is that I'll eventually end up uh, writing Batman. But, you know, I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to write a few issues here and there. And, and Wolverine really feels like I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to be a custodian of him right now. And it sounds corny, but it really is a childhood dream come true. I can only imagine. We develop these attachments. The thing about these characters, these ongoing IPs that go on for decades and decades is that we do grow up with them and the ability to steer that ship even for a while, or in your case, for a very long time in modern comics right now. With this yeah, I'm not sure what my, you know, right now I've written, if you consider for the podcast, there's 10 episodes per season, 20 episodes. Then I did an adaptation of that as a comic. That's five issues. And then if you count X-Force and Wolverine as both Wolverine-driven comics, Logan-driven comics. Yeah. I'm up to like 66 issues. Yeah, so far. that's quite the issue. Count. I'm not sure. I don't know what the, the record is for <laughs> Logan runs. That feels up there with people who had the character a long time. Jason Aaron, Larry Hama. Yeah. I'd love to keep putting a dent in them. Yeah. Well, I'd love to keep reading you doing it. Last thing, this made me laugh, and this is something of an inside joke, so I apologize if you don't get it. But Krakoa Welcomes writes, could the Honorable Mr. Benjamin Percy please read the attached quotation? And he said this panel. I'm opening it. Hey, I'm Ali. Hey. There you go. Dazzler, Sonic transducer totally 
Fabulous. Thank you, Mr. Percy. I appreciate that. And I'm sure the listeners will too. Is there anything else you would like to say about Omega Red or about your work generally before we start to wrap up? Thank you so much. This has been such a fun interview and I'm really, really excited for 10 Lives X Deaths. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's been really fun to be on here. And uh, I appreciate the deep dive, thoughtful conversation. The only thing, the thing I'd mention is that- You have a novel out today. <laughs> January is a big month for me and I have- And a movie at Sundance. You've yeah, got a lot yeah, going yeah. on got a movie coming out I've, at Sundance. I've got this, um, you know, this event for Wolverine, but I've also got uh, the next novel in this thing called The Comet Cycle. It's a series I'm writing. And even though it's the second book in the series, it's a standalone novel. It's called The Unfamiliar Garden. And it's it's actually got some parallels to some of the stuff I'm doing in X-Men in it, um, with regard to, you know, alien plant life and such you do love the plants it is love a plant heavy x-force run for sure but yeah it always means a lot when comics readers go on out and check out my pros so the unfamiliar garden if you're able to pick up a copy i'd and is that standalone or is i mean you're saying it's part of a series but like yeah but the, the way that i approached this series was you know influenced by my work in comics and that you know i here i am writing in the shared universe of dc or here i am writing in the shared universe of marvel and I wanted to build my own. Right. And you can jump on here is what you're saying. Yeah. You don't have to read the. These books operate sort of like a Batman or Wonder Woman or or Green Lantern or whatever. It's like it's all part of the same shared universe. They rub up against each other, uh, almost like family or bestiary. Um, and they contribute to They speak to one another, but they're not dependent upon one another. Love that. Well, I know as a lit agent how important first week sales are. So I did a pre-order. And if you're listening and you like Mr. Percy's work, you should pick that up now at your bookstore of choice because those first week sales, listen, it's not the most important thing in the world, but every suit at a big five publisher looks at those numbers and goes, hmm. So it's a nice way to help out artists that you like. Ben, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and uh, then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I mean, I'm on most obnoxious social media platforms. So <laughs> you can find me on Twitter or Instagram or even the devilish Facebook um, mm. where, you know, I'll post the occasional dad joke, picture of my dumb dog, Wolverine art, etc. Love that. And that's just Benjamin Percy everywhere, basically, is my... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thank you so much again for being my guest. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and the thoughtful work that you're doing because the Krakoan question has created so many more questions in the broader shared universe. And I appreciate that there are people trying to tease out some of these political complications. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. And you can support Cerebro on Patreon at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier, you will receive an ad-free version of every episode as they go up. You will also get bonus episodes, The Secret Files, as they happen. A really fun one just dropped last week for the new year. And I have a plan in place for how we're going to schedule more frequent content in the new year on the Patreon. Thank you for your support. It means a lot. It's actually, like, frankly changing my life. It helps me continue to do this. So thank you for your support. 
Next week's episode will feature critic and writer Zoe Tunnell, writer of Blade Maidens with artist Valentine Smith, who will be on to talk about Laura Kinney, another Wolverine. Then Spencer Ackerman will be returning to the podcast to talk about Callisto, leader of the Morlocks, and Nola Fow, editor-in-chief of Women Writing About Comics, will be joining the show to talk about Irene Adler, Destiny, as we go into the Destiny of X. Questions are now open for Callisto and Irene. They are closed for Laura because I will have recorded that episode by the time that you're hearing this. But thank you for your questions. You can write to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Until next time, everybody, thank you so much for listening. I am really excited about what 2022 holds for Cerebro and thrilled to have kicked off the year with you, Ben. Thanks again for joining me. It's been fun. Thank you. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening and bye. Goodbye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 